0: This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams inboxes. boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth
1: it taught me preparation all the stuff you did prior to being in those moments that really made the difference having clarity of concentration when it mattered most those skills are transferable to just about any situation
0: from people.ai this is the legends of sales and marketing podcast Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. Welcome everyone to the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. My name is Justin Schreiber and I'm the CMO of People AI I'm really excited to be joined today by Robin Matlock, who is the CMO of VMware. Robin has a great story. I'm excited to get into it. But first and foremost, Robin, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Justin. I'm so excited to be here.
0: All right. So, Robin, we're going to get into a lot of detail about your career, the twists and the turns. I don't usually do this, but I had your LinkedIn profile up. I got to go straight to the bottom, which is your education you have a degree in music, so my question to you is: Why are you not a professional musician right now? Why are we here talking about marketing?
1: Oh goodness! Well, that you are really—you're reaching back there a bit, Justin. <laughs> okay. Well, funny story about Robin and music. Yes, I am a musician, and I—I I did go to school um, on a scholarship, which was great because I didn't really have a lot of money for school, so really needed that extra boost that uh, music provided for me. However, I never had a dream or an aspiration of being a musician. I enjoyed it, you know. I loved the competition. It was it was great, but it was never my career aspiration. And there was a little bit of a problem with that scholarship because I didn't realize it. But when I got to Rice, um, it was a stipulation and requirement of the scholarship that I get a music degree. So I never had this plan to be a music major, and I certainly never had a plan to be a musician. But I did have to get the degree to get the money. So uh, anyway, that's how I ended up getting a music. Degree, but um, also more consistent with my aspirations was to go into the business side.
0: So your your plan was equivalent to what I'm used to, which is you have budget for Google AdWords, and you end up getting a video instead. <laughs> you had budget to become a music major, but you had completely different plans. Well, I'm I, I, so so. Were you one of those kids in in elementary school? What what instrument did you play? By the way,
1: uh, I was a harpist.
0: So a harpist, so did you have some kind of special giant backpack that you would strap on (laughs) so that you could get your harp to and from school? How How did that work? Oh,
1: it was quite a process. Trust me. In fact, one time the local newspaper captured a photograph of me hauling the harp. And I'm literally in this long dress. And I'm walking down near one of the schools and I have the harp in a big hard case. It looks kind of like a coffin. It's a huge hard case. And we'd use it's these dollies and we could do it ourselves. Like, you know, I was a teenager and I could get that dolly and haul it and I'd tip it and I would lean forward and I would basically kind of hold that dolly. And I, I carried that thing a lot of places. You either drove a truck, a van or a station wagon, though. So, you know, you weren't exactly like a cool kid on wheels.
0: I love it. Well, my son is in the orchestra. He plays the cello. Oh, he had God. aspirations to play the upright bass, though. Oh. And my daughter, my older daughter, was like, no, you do not want to play that instrument, believe me. Stepped him down into the cello. He's <laughs> he's thanked her ever since. But could to thats leg
1: around. Still there are a lot of okay. life
0: lessons that can be learned from the from the instruments you played. Actually, in that vein, Tell me a little bit about what you learned as a young person playing an instrument that has helped you in your career.
1: You know, actually, I've thought a fair bit about that. Um, I really tried to get my kids into music and it didn't work very well. But what I got out of music was performance. I mean, if you think about what musicians do and harp in particular, because it's a soft instrument. So often in an orchestra, for example, when the harp is playing, nobody else is playing. It is game on. And Music is a lot of competition. You know, we would do auditions from a very young age, sometimes in front of one judge, sometimes in front of three judges, sometimes in front of our peer groups, stand up in front of 40 of your peers and play a passage. You don't know which passage. You don't know which day the test is coming. And then all of a sudden, literally right there. And then they go, you move down two chairs, you move up three chairs and your ranking is so public. How you perform under those pressure instances and the results, incredibly public. You're either the first chair or the last chair or something in between. And I think it taught me preparation because it was all the stuff you did prior to being in those moments that really made the difference. And then also gathering yourself and focusing and really having clarity of concentration when it mattered most. And I think those skills are transferable to just about any situation in life.
0: Athletes talk about this notion of being in the zone when you're just able to focus in on the moment, shut out all of the noise, the muscle memory kicks in, your body knows what it should be doing, your mind knows what it should be doing. I think you're right. As an executive, you're in a high-pressure situation all the time. If you can get yourself into that zone, it completely changes the way that you're able to to deliver.
1: Now, that's so true. And yet... You can't get in the zone with quality outcome unless you have done the repetition and the work and the practice Becoming muscle memory is based on hours and hours and hours of preparation and practice. And that's not just for music or sports, for business as well. You don't just jump right into making the most critical decisions. You start and grow in your judgment and your acumen and your leadership. And that's something that you grow and evolve over time. And you're probably at your best self after the accumulation of those experiences because they have prepared you to take on more. So I do think preparation is really vital in learning how to break things down and focusing on the heart. Hard stuff, not just the stuff that comes natural.
0: Yeah. So, so we are, we are back. Robin Matlock, the early days. I've actually heard you mention that one of your heroes is your mom. Tell me a little bit about your mom. Why is she such a hero to you? And, and what did you learn from her?
1: Oh, yeah. My mom's a pretty amazing woman. A uh, little Tiny thing, you know, five foot two, eyes of blue, you know, maybe hundred and twenty pounds on a good day. So just a little, little tiny petite thing, but she was a, she was just a force, you know. Um, she was obviously a different era. She was you know, kind of came from, we came from educated women. My family's women have gone to college since my great grandmother. So it's not unheard of that women would get their college degrees, but you were pretty much nurses or teachers. And I love those professions, by the way, no disparaging feeling about those professions, but women didn't have lots of choices. And my mother was just pretty progressive and she was a teacher at first so she followed that track, but then she kept pushing her horizons, and she was very courageous. When I was seven years old, my parents were divorced. My dad was around, no hardship, but it, you know we were uh, raised by my mother. She got a Fulbright scholarship to be an exchange teacher, and she packed all three of us kids up, 12, 10, and 7, and moved us to Wales, Great Britain for a whole year. She was in her early 30s. She was a young mom. And I think about that. I mean, I didn't, you know, we telephoned. You didn't call internationally back in those days. You know, that was so courageous of her. We went and lived in this little village. You know, she taught in the classroom. The other teacher lived in our home, drove our car, taught in her classroom. And then she took us all around Europe. And, you know, we really saw and traveled as very young children. And trust me, there were some horror stories about men getting in our train cars and losing purses and passports and getting lost and all kinds of trials and tribulations. But she was very brave to take three children on such an adventure. And I think that spirit of, of just not being afraid of the unknown or embracing and trying new things and just not having it all worked out, but figuring out you're smart enough, you'll get through this and it probably will be a better journey, you know, for the effort um, are all wonderful things I learned from my mother.
0: So she she taught you to go for it. She taught you to break the mold, do what you want to do. You you grew up in Arizona, I believe.
1: Yeah. Born and raised.
0: So and and so clearly you were hustling. You were making it work, uh, involved in music, academics. How did you land in California <laughs> and how did you land in, in tech?
1: Yeah, a little bit of good luck there. Um, probably. If I really think about the breaks I've had in my life, that is probably one of the biggest lucky breaks I had because I did land in tech and I can't take credit for really strategically deciding at the age of 21 that I was destined for tech. What I knew I was destined for was not to live in the hottest parts of the world. And I grew <laughs> up in Arizona and I went to college in Houston, Texas. And my 21-year-old brain could figure out that, you know, what, those climates are really not for me. I need a change of pace. Uh, California was on my sights, but I'd really never been to the Bay Area. But I like, you know, I liked what I saw in movies. San Francisco sounded great. I had a couple other cities I was interested in. And I ran into a family member who lived in the East Bay the summer after I graduated from college. And that family member offered to house me. And uh, if I wanted to come out and look for a job, and to be honest, that was the only open door it took. My bags were packed. I'm sure I had all of a couple hundred bucks in my pocket and a full tank of gas. And I came out here and started looking for a job. So that part was the lucky break. Obviously, once I was in the Bay Area, tech was everywhere. So it didn't take long to just fall into tech. And once my foot was in the door, I've never looked back.
0: And one of my favorite quotes I heard you say once, it was a lucky break to come to California, but once I got to California, I made my own luck. What's what's the recipe for making your own luck?
1: Oh, gosh. I guess if we really could package that up, we'd all, you know, be presidents of, of our respective nations and businesses. But I think at the end of the day, there's some fundamental characteristics the world recognizes and rewards business rewards integrity, hardworking ethic, you know, a good work ethic. You got to have some brains. Okay, you know, most of us have some good brains. Do we put them to use? Do we really apply them? Um, I think you got to get really in touch with what matters to a business and then focus your energy on the things that matter and focus on results and outcomes. I never focused on promotions. I never focused on really being recognized. I focused on getting a result. And the result and outcomes in the end served me exceptionally well, um, and and I think opened up a lot of a lot of doors for me. And I guess the other thing is, you have to be open to the doors opening, and you have to have, you know, one, have your head up out of the sand and see what's around you, and then two, maybe you got to lean into a few things that feel a little uncomfortable, but they really are opportunities.
0: I want to pick up on the the point you made about. You got to have brains. Some of us are endowed with slightly smaller brains than others. Um, I go back to an experience that I had. I was in business school. I'll credit my wife with this this realization, epiphany that I had. I was not excited about my finance class. It was a tough class. It was taught by Robert Merton, who'd won the Nobel Prize in Economics for the Black Shoals model, one of the contributors. It was a tough class for me. I remember talking to my wife. And I said, I'm, I'm struggling. And she said, you know what? It's okay to say, I'm not great at this and figure out who is and partner up with them. So to that, that notion of you gotta be smart, you gotta have brains, I think that's true. But I've realized that part of intelligence is knowing who else is good at something that you might not be as good at and teaming up with them and relying on the inherent capabilities and talents that they bring to the table, which just opens up completely new worlds to an individual when they feel like they may be struggling with something.
1: Oh, I think that's so true. And to be perfectly candid, I could have never thrived in tech if I didn't subscribe to that philosophy because at the bottom of the you know end of the day, I'm not technical. I'm not an engineer. I was a music major. So how do you prosper in a very technical industry when you don't bring those technical chops to the table? And I do think that is a challenge that many business people have in the tech industry. But without a doubt, you can't be afraid of it. You can't pretend to be what you're not. And you can use the resources around you because we know there's a zillion brilliant technical people that are here that we can tap into that would be happy to sponsor us or help us or tutor us or, you know, give us exposure to things that we need to shore up on.
0: Someone wisely pointed out once that a career is much like traversing a jungle gym versus climbing a ladder. I find your career particularly interesting. Obviously, you landed in the top seat in marketing, but that's not how you started off. In fact, I had to think that you weren't even in marketing when you began your career. Can you talk a little bit about where you landed initially and how you finally found your way into the marketing profession?
1: Yeah, sure. So I started in sales. um, And really the first, I'll have to go back seven, eight, nine years of my career were in sales. Now, had I been great in sales, maybe I would have stayed in sales. I was good in sales. I just wasn't great. Um, But it was an incredible opportunity to one, gain empathy for what it's like to carry that quota. Um, to owning the customer relationship gave me a deep appreciation for what it feels like on the other side of the vendor customer relationship. I segue from sales to business development, which I thought was an upgrade on the profession because you basically do a lot of the selling work, but you don't have a quota. And I thought that was, that was really going in the right direction. So that was big deal making, license deals, some MA type of work. And I worked in a business unit. By then, I got tagged as somewhat of a utility player. And by that, I mean, hey, Matlock, you know, she's smart. She's hardworking. She's, you know, she's effective. We could probably throw her at a couple of different things and she would perform. So I got labeled that utility player and I had a boss that was willing to sponsor me and he needed to take one of his guys and move him into something else. So he put me as the head of product management, product marketing with no experience. So that was another kind of big leap because it opened up. That was my first foray into any kind of marketing. And it was really product management, product marketing. I would say that was probably late 90s. Um, And that was then started the ball rolling and I fell in love with it. I held product marketing up until the VMware job. I always had product marketing in my remit. But then I added corporate marketing and I added other disciplines in marketing kind of the next two decades um, so that's how I got there. It, it wasn't a straight line by any means.
0: You use the word empathy for sales. Coming from a, a sales background, you helped it, it, it helped you to develop empathy. I think that is so important. I also had the opportunity at a certain part point in my career to be in sales. I must say that you come into sales and you've got these romanticized notions of what sales is like, lots of downtime, big commission checks, uh, dinners, fancy dinners with clients. It is a hard job. There is so much pressure, so much weight that you carry on your shoulders. And oftentimes you feel alone. Just having experienced that and being able to sit down with a sales team now or a sales rep and say, I've been in your shoes, I know how you feel, has helped me to build so many bridges with the sales organization. And we all talk about it, but that interlock between sales and marketing is so important. So bringing that empathy to the table, I think is critical.
1: I do too. And I think they obviously will hold a little bit of respect when you're talking from a place of true experience and not just theoretical knowledge. And of course, they they like that. And there's always this natural friction. I mean, sales and marketing has to be an incredible partnership, but there is a built-in friction in the two functions. Sales is quarterly driven, and they have to be. They they are governed by that quota, and it's typically a quarterly quota. And there's really no forgiveness for them. They miss two quarters in a row. Usually, they're talking about losing their jobs, right? So it's really a, a... fight or, you know, survival kind of world. Marketers are looking longer term and and frankly, a lot of our work, not all, but a lot of our work, it doesn't give you a benefit in 80 days, right? It gives you a benefit, you know, over six months, nine months, 12 months, three years. And so there's this natural friction of short-term, long-term or short-term, mid-term and, you know, I think making sure that both parties have some empathy for what the other one is trying to accomplish and finding that middle ground is vital to a really healthy sales and marketing partnership.
0: Any advice on how to bridge that gap?
1: Yeah, well, I do think spending some time in their shoes is one sure bet way just going on sales calls, not just the perfect ones either, the ones that go wrong, the ones where they're getting their butts kicked because the product doesn't do what we said it did, that the marketers told them it did, or because the support line has cost them hours and hours and they're still nowhere and they found a bug, like, you know, kind of getting dirty with it a bit. Um, I think Just hearing those conversations and how salespeople have to navigate a customer's timeline, a customer set of needs, how they adapt your marketing materials to make it work for their customer. It's nothing like you write these things and they're so beautiful on your computer, right? They're perfect. They make sense. The language is excellent. And then you go see how it's used in the field and you realize, wow, that guy read the headline. That's the only damn thing he read, right? (laughs) Or, you know what? He took away this message and that wasn't even the point of what we were trying to land. Or just all the kinds of things you learn by how customers actually digest and apply to their business. And I think marketers will really start to appreciate how important verticals are. Like, you can't just talk horizontal. It can't just be generic. Customers really want to know you understand their specific business. Great customer references in another vertical. I don't care. That's not my industry, you know, and just I think it would give marketers a lot more visibility and um, and empathy, frankly.
0: All right, I'm going to share one of my favorite quotes from Chuck Vellante. You don't know Chuck because he was my driver's ed teacher in 10th grade.
1: Okay, nope. Chuck and I don't Never have to cross paths, Justin. Nope. Chuck,
0: <laughs> was, Chuck was fond of saying it takes 528,000 bolts to put a car together and one nut to spread it all over the road. Now, I'm not saying that salespeople are nuts. I was a salesperson myself. I love that quote, though, because it drives home the fact that one single point of failure breaks everything. As a marketer, I've thought a lot about that. It's that last rep that doesn't quite understand the pitch, that doesn't quite understand the sales motion that you have to connect with. And as marketers, I think because we think scale all the time, we we want to produce these beautiful documents and then just put them out there and move on to the next the next one. But it's that one-on-one interaction. How is this working for you? What's working? What's not working? Do you get this? Don't you get that? And just meeting with individuals, you get so much of a better perspective on what's going on out there. And also in exchange for that, you gain respect because the sales team knows, hey, he cares about me or she cares about me and really wants to set me up for success.
1: You know, I I completely agree and love that. I think the other thing is make sure you're getting a diverse pool of those relationships and input. So, for example, if all your feedback is coming from the U.S., you're going to have a set of biases based on your U.S. sales team. Well, we know the guy in Turkey or the guy in Poland or Singapore or Japan has a very different set of challenges to deal with. Their resourcing is different. Their coverage is different. The accounts they work on are different. And so I also think even as we're building those kind of relationships and those opportunities for insights, think about diversity and making sure you're getting different viewpoints to give you a truly global perspective.
0: I love that. That's a great point. So you end up working your way through some great companies, Symantec, McAfee, end up at VMware, though. You get the big job vice president of marketing at VMware. How did that feel when you stepped into that role?
1: Yeah, I thought that I had just won the lottery, to be honest. I was the vice president of corporate marketing. Um, I worked for a guy named Rick Jackson, someone I still to this day adore. Um, and I was had been in security a lot. So I'd had, you know, 15 plus years in the security industry. And I thought, wow, VMware, I'm breaking through. I'm not only in security, I'm broadening my horizons. And what a great company that I hadn't heard of, in all fairness, before I started the job search. So I land. I'm so excited. But I have to tell you, there were a few little things in that journey to land that I knew I was going to have to figure out once I got here. So I ran corporate marketing. So I had like digital and I had corporate events and brand and advertising and um, the localization, a whole bunch of stuff. But the truth of the matter is I hadn't worked for a company the size of VMware. That was the largest software company I'd ever worked for. And I hadn't managed all of those functions before. I'd had the title like head of corporate marketing, but I had done it in smaller companies and we didn't have an advertising team and we didn't have a big corporate event. So there were a few places where I, you know, I might have been a bit out of my uh, domain and my comfort zone, but in the end, it all worked out.
0: I had a very similar experience when I joined LinkedIn. That was the biggest job I had ever had. And like you, I had responsibility for a number of different functions. I came up through product marketing. I remember talking to someone on the demand gen side, closing the door and saying, look, I need some help here. CPL, no idea. (laughs) What does it mean? (laughs) No idea. (laughs) Can you throw me a lifeline? (laughs) The the most terrifying thing though, was that four months after I joined, we were scheduled to do our big user conference. And, you know, there were several hundred people that were coming to this user conference. I had never been affiliated with doing this kind of an event before. I was absolutely petrified. At the same time, I thought to myself, nobody asked me if I'd ever done that. So I guess I won't tell anybody. I'll just do my best. You figure it out, though. Going back to that original point, you find people who understand it. You're humble enough to say, I don't know how to do this. Can you help me? And you get through it.
1: I agree. And at the end of the day... Um, and I think women need a little bit more of this, this nudge. You don't have to have done every job or every function to lead um, or to, to, Own it, right? And I think women in particular statistically, we know like they don't even apply for jobs unless they have this, you know, 85% of all the requirements. And that VP of corporate marketing job for me, taking it when I had never done an advertising program, and here I was owning that at the scale of VMware. I'd never been to a corporate event the size of VMworld, just to clarify, I had never been to one, never attended one, let alone run one. And yet, you know, you like you said, you use your Resources. Be brave. Be courageous. Don't back off those things. It, it, life's too short to to wait for all the stars to align perfectly. And I think you got to trust yourself a little bit. And hey, what's the worst thing that can happen? Maybe you fail. Oh well, that happens. That's okay. <laughs> yep,
0: yep. Having that attitude that you're gonna you're gonna swing for the fences. You're not gonna connect with every every pitch, but that's okay. So you brought up you brought up VMWorld. I was actually. I was actually uh, kind of studying the evolution of VMWorld. You changed you changed that event up a little bit. You came to that had never even been to an event like that before, but then kind of put your own stamp on it. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Well, VMWorld had to evolve with VMware, and if we go back the eleven years you know ago, and I started at VMware, it was largely a one product company. Selling to system admins, right? Virtual admins, so very low in the IT organization. Wildly successful, by the way, but you know, one product, the target audience that was a practitioner level, not a really influential target audience. And boy, fast forward 11 years and you're talking about CIO, CFO, CEO relationships, a broad portfolio that spans application development frameworks, you know, the full data center stack, mobile technologies, cloud technology, like this incredible explosion of a portfolio which drove the sales process up higher in the organization and forced us to build relationships with more senior level executives in IT and in business. Well, VMworld had to keep pace with that. Um, So we did lots of things to do that. I mean, first of all, VMworld, we did decide long ago, it was a technical conference at its core. So we had to go, what are we and what are we not? We're not a business conference. So although we were going after business executives, we knew VMworld wouldn't be the premier place that we would drive that. We could do some ancillary programs, but it wasn't its heart and soul, but it was technical. And then we broadened its technical, you know, cookbook. We added networking. We added storage. We added management automation. We added mobility. We added cloud we kept adding new dimensions. Now we're adding security, right? Now we're adding a modern apps and that modernization. So we just kind of kept broadening, but we did pivot around this notion that it was a technical conference. So like anything in marketing, you have to think about if we want to grow and transform from where are we today, where is our direction And do we have permission? Do we have credibility? Just like any brand work, right? What can we leverage that we are known for now that would be a natural gate to get us to the next steps? And I think it was important, like that decision to not make VMworld really a business executive conference. I mean, we had 25,000 people. Like, We're not going to get 25,000 CIOs. That's not how they wanted to engage with us. So not trying to make VMworld something it wasn't At its core, it was one of the best technical conferences in the industry, and we just wanted to broaden that and make that relevant to more technical people. And I think that served uh, us very, very well.
0: I love that insight that there are core elements that are always going to be an essential part of an event or of a brand. The savvy marketer knows what those are but they also understand that around that core, things need to evolve. If the suit of clothes doesn't fit anymore, you gotta you gotta retailor it to address the growth that's happening in, in the company.
1: You bet, and really as marketers, because we are that long tail, right? We have to anticipate that. We actually have to think about that well in advance. By the time it's obvious that that is the requirement, <laughs> we've outgrown our clothes, Darn, the game's kind of over in our world, right? So I do think, in order to do that effectively, marketers need to stay incredibly close to the business, to the technologies, to the land, the you know competitive landscape. They've got to really stay in the middle of it, so they can keep ensuring that the vision and the direction that they are shaping for something like that kind of program stays ahead of the trends and becomes a trend setter and not a trend follower. I think that's kind of really critical.
0: You know as you're as you're talking, I was just thinking about the fact that it is risky to come to an event like VMworld and change the formula. It's risky in the short term, but if you're not willing as a marketer to reevaluate and reshape, it's even riskier in the long term. And as I talk to marketers and I see a high turnover rate candidly among CMOs it's usually those CMOs that play it too safe in the short term and to your point, get put in a position where 18 months, two years, they haven't been looking ahead and get caught flat footed. And that's why the career it's a career ending decision, not not to make those moves earlier.
1: Yeah, without a doubt. I think you've got to build in some experimentation into your culture. Yeah. And that means failure has to be okay, because you can't have it both ways. Let's experiment, let's innovate, let's try new things. But guess what, if you don't always deliver 110% perfect results, boy, you're going to be penalized. Those to me, those, those philosophies don't go hand in hand. But if you can foster a culture of innovation and experimentation, then your marketers can try some new things with some freedoms and not be afraid to take some risks.
0: Okay, so you're at VMware, you're there about four years, you're building a great team, you're changing the formula, you're having success, the CMO chair opens up. At that point, was it kind of a foregone conclusion? Robin, she's a known entity, she can deliver, she's the next CMO. Is that is that kind of how it played out?
1: No, not at all, not at all. <laughs> I wish, but it would have saved me a lot of gray hair. No, the truth be told is that um I actually... Didn't even put my name in the hat for the CMO job at first. Um, the CMO was moving on, so that was kind of public. They were going to open up a search to replace. They didn't reach out to me and say, hey, Robin, would you consider this? You're our gal. In fact, my my boss that was leaving asked me, hey, do you want to put your name in the hat? And I said, no. No. And the reason I said no, it felt very logical at the time, by the way, I said no, because I thought, look, I love VMware. And clearly, if they wanted me to be the CMO, they would just come to me and they would they would tell me, we, he's leaving, we'd like you to take the role. They didn't. So therefore, I'm going to go through this journey of trying to convince them that I'm ready for the job. They've already concluded I'm not, and they're going to just be looking for all the validation of why I'm not the right person for the job. They're going to go, hire the new CMO, bring them in. It's going to be, hi, this is Robin, meet your new boss and, you know, that's where we start. And I just thought, that just feels like not a great outcome for me. And I wasn't ready to leave VMware. And I didn't want to play that game. So I basically didn't try. I was very fortunate that about that time, one Sheryl Sandberg wrote her book, Lean In, and one of the women in HR was just having lunch with me just completely randomly asked me the same question, and she was particularly passionate about women and about, you know, developing talent in the company. And I gave her my spiel about my logic, and she literally told me, Robin, you are a buffoon. And her point to me was, yes, you're probably right. If they wanted you to have the job, they would just give it to you. But why are you looking at it that way? Why don't you look at it as an opportunity to just open up a different conversation with the executive team at VMware, let them get to know you? And, you know, if nothing else, you've just changed the dialogue a bit. And how could that possibly hurt and be a bad thing? And I thought that was actually fairly astute and logical. So I called up the then hiring manager uh, Carl Eschenbach, who's really a uh, was a fabulous executive at VMware, and I asked if he would accept my candidacy. And he said, "Sure, throw your name in the hat." So I went through an interview process, and I prepared, and I you know I really tried to show up, and I thought I knew what they were looking for, and I knew some of the things they were looking for I didn't have, and I I remember the five points and the two they wanted I didn't have, and the three I thought I could bring. And anyway, I went through this interview process. And afterwards, Carl called me back up and he said, like, I got good news and bad news. Um, The good news is, hey, you showed up and we're impressed and we got to know you a little bit and a lot about your background we didn't know. And, um, you know, they said, you know, you made the short list, like you're not washed out of the process yet. And I thought that was just absolutely fabulous, like home run, victory lap, I'm done, right? That was victory. He said, here's the bad news. You're three of three. So I didn't, you know, really, it wasn't in the first position, but at least I made the cut, right? So I thought that was it. I was really quite satisfied and I went about my business and figured that was kind of the end of that. Well, the first candidate wanted to live on the East Coast and they lost that candidate. The second candidate they went to negotiate with and something went off the rails. I still to this day don't know exactly, but something didn't quite feel right and they backed out of the negotiation. Momentum season is coming, VMworld's around the corner, all the things that make the second half of VMware's you know fiscal year really powerful, and here we've been sitting without a CMO for a couple months, and now the pipeline's dry, but guess what? Matlock's still sitting there doing her job, just plugging away, and they decided to take a chance on me, and they went ahead and give, gave me the job in an, um, in an acting role. They stopped the search, so they didn't give me the job fully. It was mine to lose, essentially. They stopped the search. Um, they said, let's get through the next couple of months, see how it goes. I think they were providing a safety net for me in case it didn't go well. They could kind of justify leaving me in the company, but dropping me down a notch. Um, and that was June of 2013 and, uh, November of that year, they made it official and we never looked back. And seven years later, I just, you know, I just passed the baton, uh, last month to Carol Carpenter, but I was the CMO for seven years.
0: Well, kudos to you. Thank you also so much for sharing that story. I think we've all been in that position. I know that I've played that game in my mind. I'm not going to ask for the promotion. If they really value me, they'll they'll tell me that I've gotten it. I don't want to put myself out there only to be told you're not good enough. It's, It's this mental gymnastics that I think all of us go through. To hear that that was your experience, and clearly it's worked out phenomenally, Um, I think is it a real inspiration to the rest of us marketers that are kind of in the throes of that. So thank you for that story.
1: I'm pretty open about that because I, I try, especially with women, to remind them, nobody did that to me but me. There was no bias out there. There was no ceiling That was the Robin Matlock ceiling. And boy, if there's one thing, like there's enough going on in the world that we don't get to control, let's take control of the things we do control. And I also think, you know, to give Carol Dweck, the author of The Growth Mindset, you know, some credit that if you just change your mindset, it's not a win or a lose. It's not a success or a failure. How can you turn it into a learning journey no matter what the outcome? And if you go in with that attitude, it all feels a little easier to be brave and put yourself out there.
0: So you are on the cusp then of retiring from VMware. What do you want to be remembered for, Robin? What, what do you feel would be the great legacy that you could leave behind?
1: Well, first, I think that I'd like to be remembered as, you know, I left VMware in a better place than when I got it. Like I gave something back, right? Yeah. That um, the years under my leadership, that marketing grew, that the company grew and evolved, and that I was an integral part of shaping that future. And I, I feel very proud of VMware. Of course, I'm proud of marketing, and I'm proud of my own career. But I was part of something really, really special. And I leave the team in great hands under Carol Carpenter's and Sanjay Poonin's leadership. But I was a big part of that and it was a big part of me. And so I I hope that as history goes down, you know, that is just a net positive and that the company looks back on that chapter and sees how we evolved. They were, you know, there were times when we were kind of getting pegged as obsolete, you know, how did we reposition? How did we re, you know, articulate what's our purpose, our value proposition, why we matter? How did we help the sales organization navigate an increase? Incredibly complex portfolio that went from one product to you know 30 overnight and help them start to focus on solutions and framing that in a way that customers can digest and really drive that traction. VMware was less than 2 billion when I started, and you know, they were 10.8 billion last year. Their fiscal year's got a couple more months to go, but you know, we're well on our track to to exceed the 11 ish billion we did last year. So
0: awesome. quite a run. That's great. Well, you are going to have more time on your hands. I wish you all the best, some great time to spend with family. I will also be monitoring Carnegie Hall and waiting (laughs) for Robin Matlock's name to appear as the top billing there with her harp. I'm sure that uh, that is one of the many exciting things that awaits you in the future. But thank you again, Robin, for uh, all of your wisdom and for the great stories that you shared.
1: Great, Justin. you take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.